All right, Psalm chapter 5, Psalm 5. Listen to my words, Lord, consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with, it, with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence, I bow down to your holy temple. And now verses 8 through 12 are really where we're going to focus this morning because they are the ask part of the psalm. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Lord, we come this morning and we desire that you and ask you that you would teach us. Lord, all of us have seasons where these lament psalms are particularly powerful for us. And all of us, even today, can find benefit in in learning what the psalmist asked for in times of confusion or questions. So, Lord, I pray that you would guide us into your truth. Um, We might better learn to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to look at a couple of things just by way of background this morning, just to bring us up to speed, because this morning we're looking at the third um, stage or part of lamenting. But just a definition for lament, a lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Anytime you're struggling with disappointment or confusion or exhaustion or irritation or your own limitation and lacks, you are a candidate for lament. It is basically trying to figure out how God's goodness can fit with something you are struggling with. And it can be a serious thing. It can be a serious medical diagnosis. It can be a job termination, being cheated on, a person trying to harm you, the fear of financial scarcity, But it also can be smaller struggles. The baby crying regularly at night so you're exhausted. Frustration with your own personality. A sister-in-law that irritates you. Plantar fasciitis keeping you from your workout. All these are things that can evoke uh, the, the need of lamenting and processing things with God. We've seen that there are four stages of lament. Go, we need to go to God, not go to other people. There is value in inventing at times with others, but we're really talking about taking our struggles to God himself. Secondly, we groan, the hardest part of lamenting, but essential. 
where we express our pain, where we are willing to go inside and process and, and see what really is eating me up, what is really weighing on me. And then to ask what we're going to look at today, to ask for help, bringing our specific requests to God, recognizing that, that the questions that we have raised with our groaning, the why, the how long, are not really necessarily answered when we start to bring our requests, but we still are asking in the midst of lament. We trust, we choose to trust. What we'll look at next week, really the, the, the most exciting part of this series, I think. And as we look at groaning, we find that there are three things in the Psalms that are continually highlighted. The person groaned and expressed their own pain and anguish for a variety of things. It can be mourning and death. It can be countless other things that are going on. It can also be, as many of the Psalms are, uh, lamenting injustice from others. It can also be grieving and groaning over the silence of God, the perceived lack of intervention of God. Groaning had four principal practices. One, we need to go to God. Secondly, we need to go humbly. We need to go honestly. And there's an earthy honesty in these psalms. Um, there's anger, there's frustration that's expressed by the psalmist. And as I mentioned, we come oftentimes in a time of lament with how the, the, the woman I mentioned did, where she said in the midst of another um, stillborn child, came to, to God and said, Lord, I know you're not mean, but you feel like you are right now. And God can handle that. His shoulders are big, that we can come with that level of, of earthy groaning to him. And that we come not just groaning, we come with all of the stages of lament. And this is the beauty of praying the Psalms themselves, taking the Psalm and letting it guide your own words because it will cover all aspects. It won't just give you a place to vent to God, although that's part of it. It'll, it'll give a place to groan, but it'll also say, these are what you should ask for. These are, these are how you can embrace trusting God in this particular historic situation. Today, what we want to focus on is this, the third of these, the asking part, asking for help. And I'd like to look at two different parts, very simply, what help we are to ask for, and we'll see that as we look at the Psalms, and secondly, how we are to ask for help. Now, we are focusing on Psalm 5, verses 8 through 12, because this particular psalm includes most of the uh, five focuses of what to ask for throughout the psalms. It actually has examples of four of them. And so, this was a good psalm for us to use to guide us through these. And the first of those things that we are what help we're to ask for is that we ask God for guidance. And you see this in verse 8. God, lead me, O Lord. Uh, make your way straight before me. This is a continual prayer in the Psalms, to lead me, guide me, uh, give direction, show me your way, give light to my eyes. Different expressions are, are in there. Continually, the psalmist, in a time of confusion and Times of pain are confusing times. There are times when it, we don't have clarity. You'll notice he says here, God, make my way straight, your way straight before me. 
It's reminiscent of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. And he's praying, God, give me clarity of where to go, what to do. I'm not sure. Next steps. He also prays with this phrase in Psalm 27. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Because of my enemies, same expression is used in Psalm 143. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. He's saying, I need a path that's clear, because when you're in anguish, when you're bewildered, when you're you're thrown, you're questioning things, you feel like you're stumbling around trying to get your bearings. And he said, "I, I just need clarity of what I'm supposed to do next, God. Well, that's straightforward, right? We... We all feel that way. We say, Lord, I, I, don't need, I don't know what's next. I don't know how to get through this. I mean, it's dark. It's confusing. I have questions. I need relief. What, do, what am I supposed to do next? Well, clearly, that is a prayer that he expects we will ask as we are in a season of lament. That one's a pretty straightforward one. There's a second thing we see in the Psalms of lament is continually asked for. This one isn't as common in our own thinking. He asks for vindication and justice. He does it here in verse 9 and 10 of his enemies. He says, make them bear their guilt. Make them fall by their own counsels. He's praying for vindication and he's praying for justice. And he prays about this in the Psalms, both for himself individually and also for other people. We'll see both. He prays for himself individually. There is a desire for vindication if you feel you have been wronged. If you feel you've been slandered or mistreated, you you want your name back. One of the things you see in the Psalms of Lament is, is the psalmist at times is not only lamenting what people are saying about him and the narrative they have, but how he's watching as other people are embracing the narrative. And he feels grieved by it, and, 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 he, and he desires, as any human desires, vindication that I'd I just like to set the record straight, he says again. And God, I, I ask for, you would vindicate my name. Well, he gives word for us to pray that. He also desired justice. You want the perpetrators to see their own guilt. You want them to see that their narrative of the situation, their interpretations are also faulty. And their counsels, you hope, will not be influential towards others. As you read and pray the Psalms of Lament, you will find voice to express these prayers. Now, these may seem a little surprising to us. Well, I thought thought we're supposed to overlook people's faults. I I, I thought we're supposed to not be fighting for ourselves, but, but leave our reputations in the hands of God. There's truth to some of that, but the natural desire for vindication is something God gives voice to us to express to him. The longing for justice is a deeply held conviction of true human life that God himself shares as Miroslav Vol, a wonderful writer, perhaps the greatest Christian writer, I believe, on justice and and, and forgiveness, says in his book, Free of Charge, and I'd like you to hear what he says. He says this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? 
God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, he says, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. 8,000 people a day hacked to death with machetes every day for 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath? But instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness, wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So writes Miroslav Vol. To know that God is angry at someone who has treated you shamefully and cruelly is powerful and important to know. To know that that when you have been shamelessly wronged, that God doesn't look at that as as irrelevant. It gives meaning to you. It it gives value to your sufferings. It enables you to sense that that, that there there is... import to my life as a victimized person, it will actually empower you toward forgiveness, not away from it. You can rest then in God's ability and willingness to bring about justice. It frees you from not seeking vengeance yourself and to live with your own hatred and bitterness. Vol, who has, again, spoken so eloquently on these subjects makes the statement throughout his books that he believes that believing in God's justice and wrath is essential for being able to forgive great wrongs. That you, you feel like, okay, I, I can let go of my, my hunger for vengeance because there is one who makes things right ultimately. That there is then the, the capacity to start to learn to forgive perpetrators. So why is it in the Psalms that we are given voice to pray for justice? I would suggest it is because being misrepresented and slandered and attacked is extraordinarily painful. There is a natural hunger for justice. A desire for justice is not in itself bitterness. It can certainly turn to bitterness, but a desire for justice is not bitter and embittered, but when you, and when you feel a string of painful losses to your name and reputation, you desire to be vindicated. You, you long for a win. When you feel th- those wronging you are getting win upon win upon win, it seems, or it will seem that way. And whether you are treated unjustly as an individual or a member of a group, there is a longing for vindication. There is a longing for justice. It's why seven of the lament psalms use this expression, Arise, O Lord, 
And then go on to say, uh, uh, Psalm 3, 7, 9, 10, 17, 74, 94. This phrase is used by the psalmist, and it is a plea for God to, to silence the oppressor. And in some cases, for God to right what is wrong in the oppressor's deeds. If you're being wronged now or feel you have been deeply wronged, God is not thrown when you come with the desire to say, Lord, would you give me my name? Would you bring justice in this circumstance? That voice is given in the Psalms. But it is not only our own justice and vindication we seek. It is also for others. There is a corporate aspect of lamenting regarding this the Lament Psalms give voice to ask God to write injustices toward groups and peoples. I was reading an article. Uh, it's a few years old now, but it was back in 2016. CNN was doing an article at a time when there had been a number of national um, law enforcement uh, actions that were deemed over the top. There had been African-American young men that had been killed. Two in particular were in national headlines. Both happened synonymously at the same time. They were, and they were, one was in Charlotte and one was in Tulsa. Terrence Crutcher and Keith Lamont Scott were both shot and killed by police officers, one in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the other in Charlotte, North Carolina. And this particular article, which I'm going to show in a moment, was basically contrasting what happened in the two places. Both were places where there was a, a, a fomenting of rage among the community, particularly up, up, up among the black community who felt a, 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 a history of injustices and were longing for, for wins, that just we would, we, would, we would have justice that would come our way. In Charlotte, North Carolina, they, the article portrayed what happened by these pictures. Uh, we can jump to the, the picture. This was Charlotte, they said. Next picture as well. Then they went to the next scene, and they showed the picture of this was Tulsa. And they took it to a, a worship service, and this next picture is in the same room and the same worship experience. And they said the result, the article was entitled, Why Charlotte Exploded and Tulsa Prayed. And the article is about a man named Reverend Ray Owens at the Metropolitan Baptist Church in Tulsa. And as the racial conflict boiled to the surface, he recognized the desire there in Tulsa for, for people to, to have voice to their pain and, and the sense of injustice that they felt, which was not born out of this event, but was born out of decades, perhaps generations of feeling we, we don't get a win. We are, we are mistreated as a people. There is injustice. And so he called together a, a corporate worship service in their very large facility. And it was not just a, a prayer vigil for uh, it was not just a vigil for Terrence Crusher who had died, nor was it only a place to pray for unity. It was a place to lament. And he gave voice for public lamenting. And he had people as they came in, and part of the prayer time was he gave anyone that wanted it. And there were people of all colors, backgrounds, uh, demographics that came in, and he gave them cards. And he said, just write down 
your own lament. And they took the cards and they had, they had wires strung all over the auditorium and they had clothespins and they would actually hang the cards throughout the auditorium where people could give, vo- give voice to their sense of, of pain and the sense of injustice. And he said he wanted his church to be a place for safe yet construction expression of our righteous rage. One article, one card that uh, the article highlighted was one that simply said, we want justice and peace. Pastor Owen served the city of Tulsa not only as a comforter, but as a leader in lament. There are times when there is a need for God's people to give corporate voice to a people that, that say just simply, we, we want to win. We want justice. And for those that have not been a part of that ethnicity or that, that cultural group or, or that background to say, we don't totally understand. We have not experienced that. But we recognize there is voice that should be given to injustice. There is voice that should be given to lament. This is part of what the Psalms are given. Much of the Psalms lamenting is not only about David or the others lamenting their own desire, justice for their personal. There's justice of how wrongs have been done toward others, towards other peoples. Part of what we pray for in the midst of lament is to pray for justice, for for vindication. The third thing is we pray for deliverance and protection. Verse 11 says it this way, spread your protection over them. This is the most oft-repeated prayer request in laments in the book of Psalms. The desire for deliverance, the desire for God to protect. I mean, when you're you're feeling life is is now dangerous and fragile, whether it is a a terminal medical diagnosis that you have been given or, or loss of a job or, 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 or people gathering against you, whatever it is, there's a sense of danger and vulnerability and the desire for God's protection. It's why the psalmist so much talks about God being a shield around him. Over 75 times the word deliver is used in these psalms. Over 100 times the word protect is used in these psalms. And David constantly uses metaphors like rock and refuge and shield and fortress and stronghold, which depict his sense of longing for God to be his protector. Now the thing to remember when we pray for God's protection is to remember that he is a creative God. For those of us that are planners, we very easily know exactly what is needed in order for us to be protected in this situation. I mean, it's obvious. There's only one way out. It's got to be this. So we're willing to help God with that awareness. Say, Lord, here's what I need. Here's what I pray for. Here's how you're going to do this. And I, I, the Lord, in his wonderful way, I think, would probably respond something like this if we heard his audible voice. Mark, thank you for that. And I want you to know that that idea is a good idea. It happens to be one of 16 million options that are available to me for me to take care of you in this situation. We need to remember the creativity of God. God will probably surprise you. 
in the way that he will see you through the season you're in right now. You probably won't be able to figure it out. And you'll think, man, I, I, I didn't see it. I didn't see how he could do that. Some of you have read this story. It's, it's an older story. Now it's a true story. It's called The Hiding Place. Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy. They were individuals that um, were Christians. And they were in uh, Nazi Germany, had, had come in. I think it was the Netherlands. And they had, um, they had chosen as a family to hide their Jewish neighbors. They had a place upstairs called The Hiding Place. It was a false wall. And somebody... Um, betrayed them, and the Nazis came in and arrested the members of the Ten Boom family, and, and Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to a place called Ravensbrück. Now, three interesting things about Ravensbrück concentration camp, um, which had typically 45,000 inhabitants, although obviously they kept dying or being killed, but they could house 45,000 at a time. There were three interesting things about this camp. Number one, it was the closest one uh, to, to Berlin. It was right in the heart of Nazi Germany. Um, it was one regularly visited by Himmler because it was close. Secondly, it was the only concentration camp of all of the Nazi concentration camps that was for just women. And third, it was unique in that less than 10% of the prisoners were Jewish. Most of the people that were brought into Ravensbrück, most of these women were people that had either uh, served in the resistance in a country where the Nazis had gone in, Poland, Netherlands, other places, those two in particular, or had been uh, supportive of the Jews, as the Ten Booms had been, or had been a part particularly of Poland because the Nazis hated the, Pol the Poles because the, the Polish people had stood more courageously against them, and so they basically took all of the politicians' wives and daughters, uh, all of the educators' wives and daughters, and put them into Ravensbrook. So Ravensbrook was a concentration camp that had in it countesses, that had in it opera singers, that had people of all different backgrounds and ethnicities. But it was a hellhole, just like all the other concentration camps, and was known for being a place where they would take some of the women and send them to the other concentration camps to serve in the brothels for the prison guards. In this prison, this concentration camp, where Corey Ten Boom and her sister were, they were in a barracks. They loved the Lord. They know Christ, knew Christ, and they called out to the Lord. And in crying out for his help day by day, they woke up one morning, and Corey in particular was totally um, blown away by the fact that there were fleas in their barracks. And it just, for her, it was like the, the, the final straw, just on top of everything else. Now we have to deal with fleas, and somehow it just was overwhelming to her. And Betsy just said, we don't know what God's doing. We don't. And they then found out that and there were, there were many male guards at the prison, that the only barracks that the guards did not go at night was their barracks because they had heard about the fleas. I'm just using that story to say he's very creative. We don't know how he's going to protect us. 
We don't know what he's going to do. He's going to surprise you. And we don't have to figure all this out. Yes, we do cry. Lord, please protect me. I, I, I'm counting on you being a shield around me. I'm, protect, I'm counting on you being my stronghold. And I'm asking you to guide and protect. But the beauty of the Lord is he is extraordinarily creative. The fourth thing, we pray for affirmation of God's favor. In verse 12, he says it this way. Surround him. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Here it's said as more of a blessing and a praise. But this phrase, your favor, is used in other psalms of lament. In Psalm 86, the psalmist prays this. Lord, show me a sign of your favor. That when you're in pain, when you're hurting, when you're confused, when you feel wronged, you need affirmation, right? You need to hear that, that God is for you, that he values you, that, that he's behind you. You need to feel like the psalmist said in chapter 4, just a few pages, a page over, where David says this in verse 3, Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. You need to know that that's how the Lord views you, that you're his. And sometimes you need external reminders. You say, Lord, show me signs of your favor. I think I probably pray that prayer more than any other prayer when I'm involved with people that are in pain. Lord, just affirm them. Remind them you're for them. He uses scripture to do that. He uses people to do that. He uses other believers. He uses circumstances to do that. But I don't think it's wrong at all to do exactly what the psalmist did in these psalms of lament and ask God, God, I need you to affirm me here. Maybe you're not going to resolve this situation. You probably won't as immediately as you would hope. But I need, I, I need encouragement. I need affirmation. I, I need to feel like David did. That I'm one of those that you look at as your boy, your girl that you're for. I think we pray that way. I think he delights for us to pray that way. And I think he delights to send along the little reminders that affirm us of his favor. And lastly, we are encouraged to pray for God's mercy. In Psalm 25, one of the Psalms of Lament, um, this is prayed expressly. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. In seasons of lament, we find that they are times not only that we can learn about God, they are also times we learn about ourselves, that we see things about ourselves that we hadn't seen. Now, sometimes we see, we come to learn that part of the source of my situation that I'm in is because of my own folly and sin, and that's hard. It's hard to face. Some of that you see that we face distress in our marriage, and then we've come to realize it's, it's largely rooted in my own selfish behavior. We learn that as parents. We see it in poor decisions we've made with our money, our time, or our sobriety. Many of the lament psalms carry an awareness of our folly and sins. Many of the lament psalms are David not only saying, Lord, protect me, deliver me, show me signs of your favor, but just, Lord, be merciful to me because I, I am a screw-up. 
And, I, and, and, and my guilt is great. Now, he allows us to see things. He was honest enough, David was, with his heart and with himself to use the seasons of lament to do self-examination. He saw his need of mercy from God. He saw that some of the attacks of his adversaries and enemies found their origin in real mess-ups by him. And so, he prayed for mercy. In the last month, as I've studied the lament uh, in particular one, I've come to know a story that I'd never known before about David. It's a story of Psalm 3 and two other psalms where the inscriptions say this was a time when David was, he was writing this lament when he was leaving Jerusalem in the greatest pain of his life. It was when uh, Absalom, his son, had turned on him and had led a coup and his closest advisor, this older man named Ahithophel, had turned against him and had jumped ship to the other team and now is on Absalom's team and it's those two that have caused this, this terrible heartbreak and David's leaving the city and says he's, he's, he's weeping as he's going and his entourage are weeping and, and it's disaster and it's heartbreaking and, and here's Ahithophel, I mean you can sort of understand it a little more with his son because Absalom had felt wronged by his father and, and, and that his father should have given him the kingdom and there were a variety of things that he felt he had been mistreated and it had festered in him, and, and now he's turned in bitterness against his father. We get that, but Ahithophel, what happened? I mean, why is Ahithophel doing this? This was the faithful counselor, the, 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 the sage advisor to David, this older man. And David's now probably about 60 years old when he's leaving the city. And, and well, here's the backstory. About 10 years before that, when David was about 50 years old, David had done his greatest sin. One night, one day actually, as a 50-year-old guy, approximately at the time, had been up on the walls and looking down and saw a beautiful babe that's, that's bathing, and he gets, brings her in, and he has sex with her. And... Her husband is away fighting in David's army. And then he finds out that she got pregnant. So he brings her husband home, Uriah, this younger guy, and encourages him to go in, sleep with his wife, and then when she's pregnant, he and everybody else will think it's Uriah's child. But Uriah, this guy of high integrity, is unwilling to go home and, and enjoy his wife because he says, how can I do that when all my, my buddies are out there giving their lives on the battlefield? So he sleeps literally on the street rather than go home to his beautiful wife. So that didn't work. So David then sends him back and then orchestrates with the, the lead general and he says, put him in a dangerous spot in the battlefield and the enemies kill Uriah. It's a horrible, atrocious horrendous thing. And David did this sin. God, God disciplined David, repented. There were things that went on. There were some ramifications in the whole family life because of his sin. But ultimately, David did repent and turned to the Lord and was still called a man after God's own heart. 
But what I had not known until a month ago was that Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. This woman who has been taken by his king that he loves and respects and whose husband has been killed is his family. And the man that he has admired and loved and been a counselor to has now just changed in his eyes. And over time, apparently, his own heart has, has completely changed in how he, lo- lose. he knows David repented. He knows David has tried to make it right. But his heart has apparently turned, and most people believe that is what contributed to his rebellion against David. Now, I want you to imagine David as he's leaving the city. And he's realizing, okay, I know what happened with my son, and he, he wanted the throne, and I can't give it to him, and I can't give him what he wants. And, but Ahithophel, I understand why he's bitter to me. I understand what I did. I grieve what I did. I, 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 I say, Lord, my guilt is great. I'm saying all this to say this. Sometimes when you're lamenting, it's not all neat. It's, it's messy, right? Because you're, you're lamenting circumstances, and, you, and if you're, you're honest, you look at it and you say, some of this is me. Some of this is mine. Some of this is my own stuff. And yeah, there were enemies that were totally godless to David. And, and, and Ahithophel wasn't right to seek his murder, and his son wasn't right to, to be doing what he was doing. But, but David had to face, there's stuff here that I've got to own. And in the midst of lamenting, there'll be times when what you need to pray for is mercy. And you remember this verse, and you need to remember this verse. Micah 7, 18. He delights to show mercy. It gives God pleasure to be a mercy giver. Because there's going to be times when you're going you're to be in that situation and, and the devil is going to be very effective in doing what I've talked about before. He comes at you and, he, and he's wearing the hat of the tempter and he makes too little of your sin. You can do this. You deserve this. Nobody will know. Come on. You deserve a break today. And so you sin and immediately throws off that hat and he puts his other hat on of the accuser and he starts coming to you and he who made too little of sin now makes too much of your sin and says you're a dirt boy. And, and who are you to, to cry out to God? And who are you to ask God for protection and, and favor and, and guidance and justice? I mean, look at you. And you recognize crying out to God for justice and protection and guidance, for affirmation will also include crying out for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because some of what I'm dealing is probably just because of me. But the Lord says, bring it all. And it can be very confusing. Imagine how it felt to David on the one part. I'm sure he's thinking, this is my fault. I get it. 
But it wasn't all his fault. What they're doing was wrong. He still was the one God chose to be the king and still wanted to be the king. However, he's right to take ownership of what was his. And when he did, there is mercy extended. I'm going to close here quick. How to ask for help. Number one, pray specifically and with immediacy. When you're in pain, this is how we want to pray. God, let it end. No rush. The next hour is perfect. Uh, Clear everything up. Get this over. Give me the job. Get the relationship back. Uh, uh, Give me a a clean bill of health. Total total cancer-free. Often that won't happen. Usually, our prayer is the moment by moment, God, give me grace to handle today's worries and fears, to cast my burdens on you, to trust you to lead me. That is what will grow your trust. It is the daily provisions of God, moment by moment by moment. We pray with immediacy, and we pray specifically. We pray dependently. The psalmist said this in chapter, in Psalm 130, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Spurgeon in his morning and evening daily devotional comments on this passage, and he says this, where it says, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. There is no cry so good as that which comes from the bottom of the mountains. No prayer half so hearty as that which comes up from the depths of the soul through deep trials and afflictions. Hence, they bring us to God, and we are happier, for nearness to God is happiness. Come, troubled believer, fret not over your heavy troubles, for they are the heralds of weighty mercies. You'll never pray better than when you're lamenting. You'll never pray with more passion. You'll never pray with more desperation. You'll never pray with more dependency because you recognize the depth of your need. We pray dependently. We pray confidently. Jesus filled his own prayer life with lament psalms. I've said this before. When he went into the temple and he says, zeal for your house has consumed me. That word, that's from a, a lament psalm. Jesus said, I come in here and I feel like the psalmist felt when he, when he longed for the worship of God and, and I'm here and I, I have that same longing and look at what it's been desecrated to. And then he ends up turning over tables and everything. When he's in the upper room, and he's feeling the grief with, with uh, Judas and knows what Judas is doing. He quoted uh, Psalm 41 where he said, He who ate bread, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And when he was on the cross, as I've already mentioned before, in Psalm 22, he quotes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus found words to express his prayers to the Father by identifying with the experiences of the psalmist, he used their words to express his own heart. Because Jesus knows the sorrows of injustice and hypocrisy and false accusations and physical weakness and betrayal and feeling abandoned. And therefore, he who was in the garden, feeling how some of you probably feel today, I just, I don't even feel I can face tomorrow. I can't even think about it. I, I just, it's just anguish to me. And you realize Jesus knew exactly how that felt and literally had what is a literal physical malady that someone can have in the most extenuating of an anguished 
uh, emotional experience where you actually, your sweat can have blood in it. And then we're, we read these words in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We ask confidently because he understands completely. There's nothing we feel. There's nothing you're struggling with that he has not experienced. There's no religion like that in the world. There's none where they can say, our creator God, our sovereign Lord came, lived life like we live, experienced all of the pain that we experience, but your God did. And you can pray confidently because he understands completely. The last thing we pray worshipfully At the seminar last week, we looked at Psalm 57 with our colored markers. And we saw the various stages of lament, going to God, what he groaned. And he groaned a lot in that psalm. He groaned about people being ravenous beasts. And they were lions. And and they they spread a net for his feet. And they dug a pit for his path. But there was only one ask in that particular psalm. And that ask was this. And it was asked twice. Middle verse and the last verse. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In the midst of his pain, his ultimate request was about God. Last Sunday, Mike spoke and then led us in the Lord's Supper, and I I sat next to him, and the guys were distributing the elements, and they didn't need me to distribute, so I was just sitting there next to Mike, and the song was played by Andrew Peterson, uh, Is He Worthy? And of course, that song is where a question's asked and, and then a, a group of people respond and the question is, you know, is the world broken? It is, and a variety of things. And then of course, it says about Christ, is he worthy? And then the response, he is. David says that to us. He says, the Lord who allowed all these things into my life, I got a lot of enemies, a lot of whispers going on, a lot of, a lot of my name being, being, being blemished, a lot of things happening that are painful to me. I'm living out in the wilderness, a lot of my life seems like because I, guys are trying to kill me. And he says, the God who allowed and ultimately orchestrated all that, is he worthy of my praise, of my love, of my trust? And David says, He is. He is. So God, in the midst of all that's going on, this is my ultimate prayer. Be exalted in all above the heavens. Let your glory be known in all the earth. I think that's our ultimate prayer. We say, Lord, this is hard. And I have specific things I'm asking you for, but I am saying this morning, I willingly bow the knee. I entrust you to be working, to be faithful, to be using even these things to show me more that will enable me to walk joyfully, trusting you. And so I say, God, be exalted.
Let your glory be over all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, you're the only one that really knows what's going on in every heart in this room or online this morning. There's people that have real issues of lament. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to know how to ask that we might ultimately be people that are led along in those prayers to trust. God, right now, today, we want to trust you with all the questions we have, with all the uncertainties, all the dangers we feel. We want to trust you to be God. You're a creative God. We're believing you to be that and to do that in our lives. But Lord, I do pray you would sustain those today Show them signs of your favor, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.